You're listening to the CLE Foodcast with Lisa Sands, the place for delicious conversation on local food and the people who grow, cook, and share it. Here's Lisa. Welcome to the CLE Foodcast. It's summertime and the eating is good. So I took a field trip west to Farmer Jones Farm Market in Huron to talk to the Jones Brothers. I didn't say Jonas Brothers, I said Jones Brothers. That's Bob Jr. and Farmer Lee Jones about regenerative farming, soil health, and the farm's increasing focus on health and wellness. This episode is sponsored by the Mohicans Treehouse Resort and Wedding Venue, recently featured on the Magnolia Channel's Road Trip Eats. I love this place. They have tree houses, cabins, and a gorgeous wedding venue situated on 77 private acres in the Mohican Valley near lots of outdoor recreation options. A few years back, I stayed in the Silver Bullet, a restored Airstream RV perched in the canopy of mature trees. It was amazing. And I know you'll want to stay at the Mohicans too. The Mohicans is Ohio's premier luxury treehouse resort. Seriously, don't miss out. Head to themohicans.net to plan your luxury treehouse getaway now. There are still some openings for summer, and it's never too early to book your cabin or treehouse for fall or even winter. Now back to our episode. Sitting a stone's throw away from some of the freshest, most nutrient-rich vegetables in the United States... I catch up with Farmer Lee Jones and his brother, Bob Jr. We talk about their father's legacy, how farmers are a lot like scientists and chemists these days, and how everything delicious starts with healthy soil. Good morning. It is a beautiful Saturday here at Farmer Jones Farm. I'm sitting here with the two gentlemen that run this whole operation. That is Bob Jones Jr. and Lee Jones. Welcome, guys. How are you doing today? Good morning. Glad to be here just great. Thanks for coming out. Oh, well, what a beautiful day to be here. I mean, it's like officially summer. Well, it's not officially summer, but it feels like it, doesn't it? It feels like it. Yeah. yeah. When you yeah. walk through the farm market, what gives it away that it's like almost summertime? What's 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 in there today? What are people here to buy? I really hope that every time somebody walks into the farm market, it feels like a walk in the garden today. There's rhubarb. We're picking squash with blossoms, which is, of course, what allowed Bob and I to be sitting here today is the zucchini with bloom that mm-hmm. Irish Balin turned us on to, uh, the greens and the lettuces and, of course, strawberries. Mm-hmm. It's just It's a walk in the garden today, and tomorrow it's the same. Mm-hmm. Every single day it represents what's coming out of the field and place and time in northern Ohio. Mm-hmm. Bob, let's talk about this. The stuff that I was just looking at in the market, um, and I want to dive into some individual items in a bit. Um, when was that in your fields? Well, we start uh, planting outdoors probably uh, mid-April. We, we plant indoors. We're fortunate enough that we have a combination of growing styles. So we'll grow in traditional greenhouses. Those are things like lettuces and microgreens. But then we'll also have in-ground in production within a greenhouse where we grow carrots. We grow beets, radishes, squash, tomato, pepper, uh, cucumber. Mm-hmm. Um, but then we, as, the, as the soil temperature warms up in the spring, then we'll start planting outside. We don't plant as early outside as we used to because we just can't get, if we plant in late March and then we plant in mid-April, the stuff in April usually beats it. So having some indoor plantings to go right into the outdoor plantings, what we're trying to do is have as consistent a supply as we possibly can throughout the entire year. 
seasonality is still very important to you, but what you're saying, I think, is that you're also meeting some customer demands, some things that people want. Absolutely. Certainly, seasonality is really important to us, and we we try to promote that where we can. Lee says often that during asparagus season, you should eat asparagus three times a day, and then you should yearn for it the rest of the year. Uh, so right now is asparagus season. We're in peak asparagus season. And then as asparagus wanes off, we'll go into English peas. And when English peas finish up, we'll go into summer squash and tomatoes. And then you're full on into summer throughout um Almost October, mm-hmm. you'll have a full season of things available, and then you'll go into the fall items. Like, even though we could have tomatoes in October and November, we could physically do that. Mm-hmm. People are ready for butternut squash and sweet dumpling squash, and it's time for tomatoes to be done. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and then you can work with the less than perfect tomatoes. You can roast them. You can can them. You can enjoy them in other ways, right? They don't have to be a big, thick beefsteak tomato on a couple of slices of white bread with Duke's mayo. There's no reason ever to throw anything away. We've learned that, haven't we? We have. Well, I was just walking through the store, through the marketplace, and one thing I noticed, I just feel like you have the largest selection of greens of anywhere that I can see. Uh, and you've got them in a cooler, and so they're a little bit, you got you got to work at it to, to take a look at them. But um, I mean, I saw bok choy. I saw different kinds of kale. Uh, you've got microgreens. Um, how important are, are greens to your business? I just feel like with the farm boxes and other things that you're doing, you know, greens are like this superstar food. They're becoming more and more important every year, uh, especially as we've been fortunate enough to develop relationships with the medical community. We're working with a cardiologist. We're working with a holistic oncologist. And th- asking them what are what are the items that are the most important to their patients and they're telling us that greens are are hugely important uh, for nitric oxide production Um, so we're working very closely with those folks and with dr amy to help uh, put recipes together in the boxes that we ship out but then also folks can come here to the farm and pick and choose individual varieties or blends that we've put together based on those recipes from the physicians. Well, that was a fantastic segue to something I wanted to ask you. I periodically go on your website. Mostly, I'm going there to check on events and what's happening here at the market or some of your uh, your special dinners at CVI. But I happen to notice this, again, increasing emphasis on health, nutrition, and, uh, and collaborations with the medical community. I know you were doing that before uh, Dr. Amy Sapola came on the scene and, and started working with you, but you've got a really exciting thing happening in August, which is a uh, culinary medicine certification class that's a course over the weekend. And you've got farm boxes that people can customize for their particular wellness needs. Uh, who wants to take that question? Tell me about those. Well, I'll, I'll start with it, and Lee can jump in at any time. Certainly, the, the health and wellness um, portion of the business was actually a brainchild of our father. He's the one that built the lab on the farm many, many years ago. Uh, There's a really interesting story in 2020 when COVID hit, and we were 100% restaurant supply company. So all of our our customers were, in fact, restaurants, and 90% of them closed. Mm -hmm. Um, 
in March. And dad came to Lee and I in April and said, hey, I want to buy a new ICP machine, which is this $40,000 piece of lab equipment that he wanted for his lab. And I said, dad, did you hit your head on the, <laughs> on the bedpost this morning? There, you know, we're trying to figure this out. And he actually said, this is something I really believe strongly in that we need that, to be able to look at mineral content of the produce that we're growing to correlate our growing techniques. Soil biology so closely mimics the gut biology and the microbiome in the gut. And mineral density and the, the ratios, not only the content of minerals, but the ratio of minerals within a tomato, within a zucchini squash, are, are identical to the mineral ratios necessary in healthy humans. Dad was on to this, and he had a better grasp of it than Lee or I had. We have a much better understanding of it today. He was exactly right. That piece of equipment has unlocked our understanding. Now, we don't have it all figured out by any stretch of the imagination, but we're learning enough to excite us to go further and faster. Bringing Dr. Sapola in has really helped accentuate that because she had a whole different level of training on the medical side mm -hmm. and the the um, functional medicine side and how the, these interactions of healthy food, you know, food as medicine is not new. Right. This is thousands of years old. It's just that our understanding of it is coming to the forefront now better than it has in, in, in our lifetimes. And it's meshed up very closely with what we were seeing. Chefs taught us about the importance of flavor and shelf life and aesthetics what we didn't know for the past 30 years, because those things were our goals, mm -hmm. flavor, shelf life, and aesthetics. What we didn't know is that we were dragging nutrition along, kicking and screaming, because all of those same growing technologies of regenerative agriculture and soil health and microbiome are things that accentuate mineral density, vitamin density, phytonutrients. And now that equipment that we have in the lab has afforded us the opportunity to fine tune that in. And we're now looking for specific types of glucosinolates or mm. sulfur compounds in cruciferous vegetables that these oncologists are telling us that they want to target. Interesting. Lo and behold, glucosinolates in the microgreens combined with radishes produces sulforaphane in the body. Sulforaphane is a natural chemoprotectant. Who knew? Hmm. Eating your greens is good for you. It's not just something your grandmother told you. Mm -hmm. And the idea really is that you should be doing it all along uh, to arm yourself, you know, in advance of, you know, maybe getting a disease, if you can, right? There is a preventive, a preventative. I think um, preventative is, school of thought is as or more important than the curative side of this. Uh, it's easier to stay out of trouble than it is to get out of trouble. Mm. Well said, well said. Lee, what do you want to add there? Well, I think that, you know, the big thing that the Medical Association and others make the assumption of is that a green or a carrot is a carrot is a carrot is a carrot. And it's simply not true. And this equipment in a lab help us, helps us to be able to define the differences mm -hmm. um, between. And we're seeing some huge numbers that are really showing that this we're on the right track. I mean, some of the microgreens and the superfoods, we're seeing numbers as high as 150, in some cases 300 times higher than the USDA average. Um, Bob talked about Dad pushing for this equipment. Certainly the timing wasn't real good on that. Um, he guaranteed that 
he would sell off enough equipment that was sitting around on the farm to pay for it. But he did not, fortunately, live long enough to get that right. done. But uh, he he certainly was on the right path with that. For so sure. when, when you first got that piece of equipment, uh, what was the what was the approach? You're able to analyze, measure, test, and then you know look at the results, and then you can go into your fields, you can look at your soil, and you can make adjustments to get the results that you actually are aiming for? Is that how that works? That's exactly right. So what we're trying to do in the lab is correlate cause and effect. If we send samples out to a lab, you're going to get a result back. Um, But when we can do that here on the farm, we can make that turn that much quicker. And then we can adjust and change whether that's water regime whether that's feed regime uh, in, in fertilizers or even light. We've been able to take a variety of Genovese basil and make it um, spicy mm. or sweet based on the light regime that it's used. Now, we're a non-GMO farm, so mm-hmm. this is not genetic modification. Uh, it's genetic selection. Mm-hmm. Select for open-pollinated varieties that the flavor has not been bred out of, Mm -hmm. and then put those good old-world genetics in really healthy soil and allow those genetics to express themselves. And we're getting some fantastic results, surprising us in many instances, uh, but we're learning every day how to get a little bit better and a little bit better at it. And it's Mm. all based on soil health. You know, what he's talking about with affecting flavor, it really shouldn't be a surprise. I mean, for listeners that can relate to how different years affect the flavors of a wine. On a wetter year, it may have one flavor. On a drier year, which we all tend to think we get a better wine on a drier year. I mean, an arugula in your garden. If you have a stress situation, you're going to have a spicier. If you have a wet year and it's growing lush and soft, it doesn't have as much flavor. So it's really, it's about trying to really understand cause and effect on those. But I mean, I'd certainly reiterate, there's no voodoo here. Mm -hmm. This is as back to nature. Dad always had a saying that the only thing we're trying to do is get as good as the growers were 100 years ago. I think maybe it goes back even further than that. Mm -hmm. It's really working in harmony with nature rather than trying to outsmart it. Well, what they didn't have hundreds and hundreds of years ago was technology. Exactly. So you're taking the the old timeless things, right, that that Native Americans, that, that people many, many generations before us did, and you're now able to you always had the hunch. You you knew what you were doing was producing a better product. But now, because of the scientific tools, you can actually show that data. Well, we can understand it quicker. Uh, Dad was blessed with 60 years of experience growing vegetables. Mm-hmm. And he learned a lot each and every one of those years, as Lee and I have as well. We just haven't caught up with him yet. Mm-hmm. He, he says 60 years of mistakes. I think the thing that's the most important that we're learning now, I know for me personally, is that really what's important is this idea of terroir. It's everything. It's the environment. It's the soil health. It's the cover crop, the rotation, allowing the ground to rest naturally and build back up so that when you do plant that vegetable crop in there, we're really producing energy in Mm -hmm. a different form. We're converting light energy to chemical energy through photosynthesis of the plant. Mm -hmm. How do we maximize that photosynthesis? It's to create an optimum growing environment for that plant. Mm 
mm-hmm. so that the plant can the plant genetics can express themselves but it takes the entire environment around that plant we're seeing generational increases on some of the items that we save seed because that seed is planted here in our location three mm-hmm. miles in from the lake a microclimate on old lake bottom sands and then we save seed from some of the varieties and we'll plant it again mm. now we'll select we might plant a hundred tomato plants and we'll pick 10 that we like the characteristics of those and save the seed from those 10 plant them again next year and again and again and every generation that they become more and more accustomed to this environment the plant is healthier it produces more of a better flavor mm-hmm. it's really um that's something I had no idea about many years ago. It's just coming with time. I feel like you both and Farmer Jones Farm, the Chef's Garden, all of your enterprises are really changing the definition or the understanding, perhaps, of what a farmer does. Uh, we have a very simplistic view of farming. You go in the field, you plant stuff, you harvest it, you sell it. But what you're describing is another level. And I'm wondering if the, the, the future of, you know, this sounds like a big thing, but like the future of our planet, the way we eat, the lifestyle we have, the sustainability of the land, more people need to do what you're doing. So give me an idea larger than this farm. What, what's happening on the larger landscape? Because I know you're out there speaking, talking, publishing data, sharing your information. Um, What's the future look like? What's what what's in store for us? Well, change. There, it's inevitable that we have to make change. You know, we have a in the last hundred years a fifty to eighty percent decline in the nutritional value of vegetables in a hundred years. It's not sustainable. At that same time period, from nineteen twenty to twenty twenty, a three thousand percent increase in kidney, liver, heart, cancer disease, attention deficit disorder, autism, childhood obesity, diabetes. There's a direct correlation with the quality and the integrity of the food that we're growing and consuming, and the health or the lack thereof in our nation. It's not sustainable. To a young person, maybe a hundred years sounds like an eternity. To some of us that are fifty and sixty years old, why? A hundred years isn't that long, mm-hmm. and it's exciting to see uh, "Kiss the Ground" documentary, "Food and Country" that Bob did a real nice job on, and, and it's coming out. But there's uh, and "Kiss the Ground" just got another one. What's that one? The called? new one, uh, "Common just Ground." Or? Common Ground, and it just premiered yesterday. Um, and "Kiss the Ground" had 10 million views. They're anticipating 100 million views of "Common Ground." So the big worry right now is that they're going to develop this demand for regeneratively grown produce that isn't going to be able to be filled. Interesting. But that's exactly what you have to have to have change. The farmers are not bad people. The way that they're growing product, they're mm-hmm. good. They're mm-hmm. savvy. They don't miss. We've got neighbors that are just amazing growers. They don't miss a beat on getting in the ground at the right time. They're efficient. If if the model was different, they would grow differently. Right now, the model is keep the cost as low as possible, produce as many tons per acre as possible, and you might stay in business. Mm-hmm. If we can create that demand, right. that will change it. And it's exciting. It's not all doom and gloom. There is hope. And it's exciting for us to see the results we can have. And you see awareness coming. It's, gonna, it's starting to snowball. Mm-hmm. I think that 
one of the things Lee and I talk about often when we speak is that modern agriculture in the United States today is broken. It's broken both economically and agronomically. We've been speaking about the agronomic side of this, and the way to change that is through regenerative farming. The economic side, which Lee just touched on, is the economic model in agriculture, and it has been this way for for decades, is to borrow operating capital in the winter, farm all summer, hope that you can pay that back, then go into the lending institutions, massage the books the best you can, and hope to get a, a operating note for, again, the following season. The problem is that if they had a bad year, and they are struggling to pay that back. Then they get the next operating loan, and they're taking some of that capital to pay last year's. If you have Mm. two bad years in a row, you're out. Mm. And it is that fragile of an economy in agriculture. Part of that is due, in fact, to how we've set it up in this country. And then you take the agronomic side, where we have the, the cheapest per capita spending of food of any industrialized nation in the world, and the highest per capita spending on healthcare. There is a direct connection to those two statistics, and we can fix those. Now you add in the third layer, the one that may be the most important to all of us, and that's climate. I was going to go to climate next. You beat me to the punch. Well, because regenerative agriculture addresses all of those, It, it probably addresses climate as much or more as it does the nutrient density of the food that's being produced in that system. Uh, it's, it is changing. It has to change. It will be market-driven, mm. uh, and, and the other growers will come along. Um, we're getting more and more questions mm-hmm. uh, as to what are we doing on the farm and, and how it, what's the impact of that, and can you show us the impact of that? So we, we look at that as positive. Mm-hmm. For years, um, folks have, in, in the country, we have a term called road farming. Sunday after church, we take a ride through the country, and you see how everybody else's crops look. And we would see the neighbors go down the road and just shake their head. Say, what are those crazy guys up to now? <laughs> now some of those same folks are asking us, can we help them as well? And we welcome that. It's mm-hmm. not an us versus them. It's not a right versus wrong. It's just different. Mm-hmm. And we're seeing some results, and we're sharing those results. And, yeah, we want all of farming to be regenerative. Everybody wins in that model. Let's talk a little bit about climate related to what you're experiencing um, in this in this year, the start of the growing season, uh, which I think you said really, I know you grow all the time, but April, you're planted in April. What are you observing right now? What are your concerns about, uh, you know, no rain, heat, er uh, erratic weather? I mean, how does that affect you guys? The weather patterns are changing over the years. It seems as though we're getting more extremes one way or the other. Um, That could be longer periods of dry, longer periods of storms. Uh, we are warming ever so slightly. Those are cyclical. Mm-hmm. So I'm not as concerned about some of those things because they've happened m- many, many times over thousands of years. Mm-hmm. Um, but our reaction to it, and regenerative farming gives plants and the environment resiliency, the ability to adapt and adjust to that change. I'll give you an example. We have uh, several fields of cover crop that we planted last fall. Multi-species cover crop for species diversity, 
of the plant material, mm -hmm. but also then species diversity of the microbiome mm -hmm. in the soil. Mm -hmm. We're now taking five, six foot tall rye field peas and vetch uh, that have built nitrogen in the soil. We're now rolling that flat. So we have a bed of about six inches thick of that cover crop, mm -hmm. and we will plant through that cover crop. Now, that keeps the soil about 15 degrees cooler Interesting. than bare soil that's being uh, beaten down on by the sun. Mm -hmm. It also holds moisture, so the, and it prevents weeds from coming up, mm -hmm. so you don't need herbicides. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh, how about right. that? And right. you're drawing down carbon in the growth of that. We want living roots and green plants growing on the surface of the land 52 weeks of the year. In the wintertime, they grow very, very slow, sometimes under snow cover, but we want to have living roots and growing plants 52 weeks of the year. Otherwise, you're losing net potential gain mm -hmm. in photosynthesis. If mm -hmm. you don't have a plant there, you can't mm -hmm. harvest the sun. Down, I guess it would have been here on Avery, uh, we were wondering what, uh, we were, what we were seeing in the fields, and we were guessing that a bit of what we were seeing was cover crops. It might not have been your fields, but I was just wondering, like, is, is vetch... That's that. It's very close to the ground, right? Uh, it can actually. We plant it with rye. It typically grows close to the ground. You're mm -hmm, correct. Mm -hmm. When you plant it with a companion crop like rye mm -hmm. that grows very tall, mm -hmm. the vetch has tendrils like peas, ah. and it grabs onto the rye, and then it grows up, and you get more leaf and more flower. Interesting. It, it looks like a fern. They work together. Yes. Mm. Companion crops or sister crops. Okay, interesting. And my guess is what you saw was not that. Ah, okay. Uh, it's either wheat or field corn or soybeans. We definitely saw that wheat then. We, we guessed that we're right. We're seeing more and more cover crops only because we're in the western basin of Lake Erie mm -hmm. where the algal bloom is the worst. And when you're in the western Lake Erie watershed... There are programs now that regulate the amount of fertilizer and when it's applied, how it's applied, mm -hmm. uh, which has been very easy for us to comply with because we've been doing it for 20 years. Mm -hmm. Others are now starting to, to come on board to that um, to get, again, living roots in the ground, green cover on top. Mm -hmm. And so you prevent wind erosion, water erosion, and hold those minerals in the soil for a subsequent crop. Uh, the government is now, there's a program called H2 Ohio mm -hmm. that pays a farmer $20, $25 an acre and to defray the cost of the cover crop to help with that. Mm -hmm. um, it's working. Mm -hmm. We're starting to see that work. Uh, other farms are starting to see what we've seen here for many, many years. Mm. There's just so much at play that, um, again, the average person that is shopping your market or, you know, aware of you doesn't, doesn't know. Um, but we end up reaping the benefits of it for sure <laughs> when we shop we certainly hope so that's mm -hmm. our intent mm -hmm. to grow a cons consistent supply of a nutrient dense mm -hmm. array of mm -hmm. vegetables that is seasonally aware mm -hmm. and our our customers tell us they can taste a difference i think you and can that's taste a difference. at the end of the day really what we're looking for food that looks good tastes good is good for you and is clean that's a great jumping off point for us to revisit one of your other core business channels, which it, it appears to me to be rebounding, is uh, restaurants. You obviously were affected by COVID-19. You pivoted, you changed. But from what I gather, um, at least what I'm observing in the places we've traveled in Cleveland and Northeast Ohio, restaurants are back. 
they're operative, they're opening, chefs are doing what they love. So I'm curious, and I feel like you're out there traveling and you're going to see some of your buyers, your clients. What are you noticing in the restaurant landscape at large? They're busy, which is great. We're so thankful that they're back at it and moving hard and they're short of labor. Mm. They can't get the staff. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's played well to us because we've been molded. I mean, you know, when we lost the farm in the early 80s, chefs took us under their wing and we've been taking their lead um, for 40 years. And one of the things that, you know, they tell us is they don't like waste. So a lot of what we send out is by the count, not by the pound. If a chef has 300 people to feed and she orders 50 pounds, does she know whether she's got enough or whether she's going to have to 86 it at 9 o'clock on a Saturday night? Where doing it by the count, they know they're going to do 300 people and they can get it. That's part of it. The other part is, you know, it's picked to order. It's a system. You're not going to see giant warehouses where this stuff's all inventoried. If we lose that, we lose our advantage. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the product is picked to order. It comes in, it's packed, it's shipped, and it's sent out. So the shelf life is there. But also, the level of cleaning that we do, I think, alleviates some pressure for the chefs in the kitchen. So they can get that product in, and they can take it out, and they can put it on a plate, or they can cook it or steam it or do whatever. And it, I think that we're really becoming an extension of those kitchens all over the country by being able to do some of that prep work here and relieve some pressure. Mm -hmm. um, well, I know that when I've ordered a box and I open it, it's, it's in my mind, it's ready to eat. It is right. ready to use. It's ready to put on a plate in its raw, beautiful form. I don't worry about it in the least. So I can imagine. I never really thought about how that helps labor at restaurants, right. but it makes perfect sense. I feel like every year, every season, there's sort of, I don't know, the, the it things that people want. Uh, your rhubarb is in there. I know probably not for very much longer. Um, that beautiful purple asparagus. You know, there's things I associate with this season. Um, what are some of the things that you're getting requests for? What are what are some of those things that people order? Because you, again, work with restaurants all across the country. So the seasonality of some of these places might be different than here. What's um, What are you growing right now? Yeah, you know, and I know that you're looking for specific things mm -hmm. where we talk about a sugar snap or a snow pea. But I think in general... Mm -hmm. I don't believe it's a fad. Mm -hmm. I believe it's a trend that mm -hmm. it's plant-based movement. Now, that's not new news. We've been talking about that for the last four or five years. But I think the key is is that this year it's clean plant-based. And it's really, you're seeing smaller portions on protein. And let's introduce a vegetable as center of the plate. And it's really exciting for us to see those vegetables really whatever is in season today is what that chef wants they're keeping those menus loosely knit enough that they can say seasonal vegetable so if we're out of mm. one product but the next one is coming in we start harding, harvesting baby squash they can roll right into that when we finish up on the asparagus they can roll into the baby squash bob mentioned the english peas and it's just i think that they're recognizing to keep those menus free-flowing enough to just take advantage of what's in season today. You know, the English peas are exciting for us. We do a fall crop. Nobody tends to think of peas in the fall, uh, but we'll do a fall crop of the English peas, and the temperatures 
are really conducive to that. Mm -hmm. It's interesting. One of the top selling boxes in the home delivery program is called Best of the Season. And it changes. It's kind of like a daily menu. If you go into a restaurant and they're featuring, uh, you know, seafood of the day, it's catch of the day. This is kind of like catch of the day from the farm. Mm -hmm. And so it's whatever looks. We have folks going out through the field that their only job is to go see what looks outstanding today. And let's make sure that that's what the recipe of the box is. And Jamie does, Chef Jamie over at the Culinary Vegetable Institute does the same thing. Those menus really are predicated around a walk through the garden today. Mm -hmm. It's it's really exciting to do it that way. Well, and I was pretty excited to see some events jump back on your calendar. I did find um, the sake tomato pairing or combination kind of interesting. Can you explain uh, where that originated, that idea? Probably not. (laughs) (laughs) I was thinking you were going to tell me you were this uh, sake fan and you thought that they would go great with uh, tomatoes. They do. Okay. I can can attest to that. Okay. It is going to be at a great event. It looks a little bit spendy, but when you look at what you're going to get, for somebody that's really an aficionado, this is going to be an an incredible evening. The pairings between sake and tomatoes are extraordinary. And these will be some of the first tomatoes coming out of the fields and the flavors Mm -hmm. are really, really special. It's going to be a small, intimate. I don't suspect that this is going to be a 100-person dinner. Mm -hmm. I think that it's going to be really a fun, intimate um, learning Mm -hmm. experience, and Mm -hmm. everybody's going to go away happy. Yeah. Well, sake is pretty niche, right? But the people that love it really love it. And there are a lot of nuances to it from what I understood. Um, I've not been able to embrace it myself, um, but I often just say that that's because I haven't had the right the right stuff. <laughs> so, is, is that a hint? <laughs> maybe. Uh, maybe. I, I've got a good a good summer of eating we, planned. I might have to add that. We, but I, I we do, may be able to work something out. We can probably work something out. I, I twist my arm. But I have to say, I, I already marked October 28th with, with Chef Kenny Gilbert mm. on my calendar. Not only because I do like to come here at that time of year, um, I mean, I think the important thing that I like to tell people among, well, there's many important things I like to tell people about coming here, the reasons they should come here, is it is really truly different in every season, just what you were saying about your boxes. Um, and that's part of the fun. That's part of the anticipation. You know, I can't wait. I'm, I can't, I, I want to keep talking to you, but I can't wait to walk in the store and get get to shopping because, you know, I've been looking at the photos, I've been looking at what you've been sharing, and um, I mean, the colors, the the look of everything is just, it's unsurpassed. Uh, and that's what people need to see. I think when they come here, they'll be hooked and they're going to want to come up, you know, several times a year. I mean, I know you have your regulars, but I live a little too far away for that. Well, that's interesting what you said about restaurants because you, you emphasized flexibility uh, for a lot of reasons. Um, and I think that's really how we've become accustomed to eating also. Um, and we're going to continue. I embrace that. Uh, Especially as, you know, we're empty nesters now. There are nights when, uh, you know, tonight we may very well just eat a bunch of vegetables from here today. You know, we don't really need much of anything else. Well, Troy might think so. He's sitting right next to me. But Here's my (laughs) words of encouragement for everybody that's going to a farmer's market. Don't have a preconceived list Mm. when you go to the farmer's market. 
go to the farmer's market, look at what looks amazing today, and that becomes what's for dinner. It's so much fun. And it's boring if you're working from a list that you're having to go and try and track all that stuff down. Mm -hmm. Let what Mother Nature is providing today dictate what we're going to eat today and tomorrow, and then go do it again. I like it. What are you, what are you eating this weekend? I'm hanging on to the last of this asparagus. I had green beans last night. I, if I told Mary, once I told her eight times, she did some of the new uh, potatoes, small uh, C or D-sized potatoes mm-hmm. and green beans. And I said, what in the world did you season this with? There wasn't any ham in it. I tend to like a little <laughs> ham in with it. It was just the green bean, Bush Blue Lake green beans, new crop potatoes, and a little bit of garlic powder and some seasoning, some salt and pepper. Mm-hmm. It, I told her, I said, I don't know when I have put something that good in my mouth. Mm. I can't remember the last time I had something that delicious. It was probably like last week, though. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> he just can't remember it. <laughs> oh, only, only, only a brother could say that to a brother. Bob, what about you? I don't know you as well. I mean, you know, you, your day-to-day on the farm is, is very different, I think, than Lee's experience. I mean, I, you, you share the load, you care about this place, you both have very distinct roles. I know there's overlap. When you walk around this place, what makes you proud? What makes you really proud of what you guys have built here? And I want to parlay that into a fo- the following question, which is, like, what's, what's your best day? What's your best day on, a, on this farm? What's it like? I think it's very easy for both of us to answer the question of what are we the most proud of, and that's our team. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lee and I, this is not about Lee and I. Mm-hmm. Lee and I get the benefit and the pleasure of representing the farm and representing the team. Uh, Lee does that in a much more public fashion than I do. We do have our own distinct roles, but uh, let me be the first to tell you, I do not want his job, and I don't believe he wants mine. But that's why our partnership Mm -hmm. works so well together. We have a very large family on the farm. Mm -hmm. We're even related to some of them. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, But some of these folks that are are working side by side with us on the farm uh, have been here 20 to 30 years working with us. Lee and I have kind of grown up with some of these guys. Right. You know, we were all working for dad 30 mm-hmm. years ago, mm-hmm. um, but we've kind of all grown up at this together. We're learning. Um, some of the guys in the field know more about some of the crops than I do, but we work together. We learn together. And that probably, I guess, really would be the answer to the second part of that question mm-hmm. is, what's a great day? Mm-hmm. It's when... We go out into the field and things are going really well. There's a lot of activity. It's like a beehive of activity here on a summer day. Everybody knows their role and is doing their thing and things are going well and the crops look good. Um, And then you come over to the market on Saturday and people uh, say, oh my gosh, I love what you guys are doing here. Mm -hmm. You know, it kind of feeds our soul a little bit to have someone appreciate our life's work. That's it's no different than it is probably for a culinarian. Mm-hmm. You know, you're only as good as your last plate. However, when folks are enjoying that meal and they don't just dive into it because we eat with our eyes first, when they look at that product that we're growing and they enjoy it mm-hmm. and then they taste it and they enjoy it at another level and then you pair a couple of things together and you get a whole new plane of flavor um, I oh, think that the chefs and, and, and even the home consumers now are teaching us so much. 
really is about, and I think something that dad taught us was listen intently to your customer mm-hmm. and then do everything within your power to meet and exceed expectations, even expectations that they didn't know they had. Mm. I like it. Very quotable, Bob. You're only as good as your last plate. I like that. I'm going to remember that. Lee, last words before we uh, end up. If you'll notice, I've been picking little spiders off the microphone, and that's how I know I've finally matured in my life, that I, I don't have to be afraid of little tiny spiders. I can just pick them off real calmly and keep doing what I'm doing and put them aside because even those little spiders have a purpose. You're in a natural environment, right? and there's life all around us. I wouldn't have been able to do that 20 years ago, trust me. Lee, final words? And, and you didn't kill the spiders. I didn't. No, I we, don't like to do that anymore. You have no idea how many great talks and conversations we've had around picnic tables. We had them with my father at picnic tables. My dad did a lot of interviews at picnic tables. So I think it's very fitting that we're sitting here overlooking the farm on a beautiful Saturday morning with customers in the market. And you can hear the chatter of that mm-hmm. and um, having a great discussion about regenerative agriculture. God has blessed us way beyond what we deserve uh, and we try and use those blessings in a way to be able to benefit our team mm-hmm. our customers the environment and hopefully we can create an, uh, a situation that can sustain beyond what Bob and I can do here mm-hmm. um, we're grateful to have your friendship and we've gone back quite a few years now so it's wonderful to have you here and um, just it's my pleasure. Yeah, and I hear so the, much. I hear the music kicking off. That means the market's getting livelier. That's it's a right. beautiful Ohio day. A stone's throw from Lake Erie here in Huron at Farmer Jones Farm. Thank you so much for joining us on the CLE Foodcast. I really appreciate it. Every time I visit you, I learn something new and meaningful and important that changes the way I think about food. Have a good one. Thanks for coming. Remember, eat your veggies. No problem. The CLE Foodcast is a project of Fork in the Road Productions. My sound engineer is Bill Connors. And thanks to Chef Douglas Katz and the Katz Group of Restaurants for being a sponsor of the CLE Foodcast. Get to Amba or Zug on a gorgeous summer night. You won't regret it. And I have partnered with City Fresh, the CSA that isn't quite like other CSAs. Be sure you catch episode 80 and learn more about City Fresh, their flexible and affordable local farm boxes, and their 15 pickup locations. Visit CityFresh.org for more details and get started with their CSA program that fits your life and budget. Until next time, stay hungry, be kind, and always, always set a bigger table.